You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And yes, welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media Network. To begin another great new week this week, it is Monday, December 10th. Hope you guys had a great uh, restful weekend. I certainly did. Uh, myself, I unplugged a lot of the time, except for my Twitter tantrums you saw, you know, here and there. But uh, spent a lot of good quality time with the kids, playing a lot of games with them, and uh, now we're back, back in the grinder for another five days here. And as every week starts off really slow until it gets really quick, about an hour or two into the Monday, and I'm certainly seeing that today, where once again I have more things that I want to talk about than minutes to utilize to talk about it. Um, First off, just wanted to mention to you that I am hoping in the future to have more special guests on the show. And let me know who you want on the show, you know, instead of just hearing me talk all the time, what type of personalities you want to hear from, what type of individuals. And, you know, like, like I said, in line with the culture and goals and aims of this show, I really want to have people that will give over the mechanics of how certain issues work, certain policy challenges we're having that the political class won't speak about or won't speak about accurately. It's those type of people I really want to have on the show that could be very informative, um, not just necessarily well-known names like get this well-known senator or this well-known um, political figure. And you know, over the weekend, it was a distinct honor to really finally – all my pushing to make connections within certain spheres of law enforcement came to fruition, and a lot of them are talking to me now. Now, a lot of these guys will not be able to come on the show to talk openly just because they can't, but certainly it is very helpful in the work we do here that at least I could have off-the-record conversations with with some of them, but definitely uh, we will have some on-the-record conversations. And you know that's part of the problem we're having is that the heads of agencies, even the more intrepid agencies of government, law enforcement, are completely politicized. We certainly all see that with the FBI. But you know, you try to call the Washington press office, ICE, CBP, DA, whatever it is, and I don't know, it may as well be the Obama administration. They won't work with us. And it's just dumb that the media is getting out this one side of the story on our immigration policy, and there's so much truth to get out there about our border, what's happening in the interior of the country, which we're going to talk about today with criminal alien gangs and transnational criminal organizations and cartels, and how their work is being stymied by sanctuary cities, sanctuary judges, and there's no desire to work with us to get out this story. But you should know when you go to the field offices where you actually have the people that aren't political, they're they're just screaming to get out the truth. Now, a lot of them, they're terrified to do so because they feel they'll lose their jobs. 
You know, imagine imagine a field officer doing liberal work under the Obama administration being scared to get out their liberal message. No, that doesn't happen because they get it out. But here, even under this administration, it's very frustrating. Um, but just know that a lot of them are really, I mean, some of the biggest patriots I've ever met that so badly want to keep us safe. And, you know, I was just, I spent several hours over the phone with phone calls um, to three individuals in law enforcement in DEA and ICE in the field. And one of them I'm going to talk about openly, um, Todd Lyons, the director of the ICE field office in Boston. Great conversation with him, and I hope to get him on the show this week or next week. But I really had trouble sleeping over the weekend after these conversations. They were very heavy conversations, and they were late into the night. And I was just thinking, oh, my gosh. They appreciate the work we do here, but I will tell you the one feedback piece of feedback I got from one of them was, Daniel, the one thing you're wrong about is that your articles are too politically correct. They are underselling the severity of the problem we have in this country with criminal aliens, with sanctuary cities, with the drug crisis, and everything that ties into that. And by the way, it all ties back into this First Step Act, releasing federal drug traffickers that are inextricably involved in all criminal activities, but certainly the drug crisis as well as other things. And then, again, it ties all back into the courts. So today is going to be another, another show about some of our favorite issues because these really are the force multiplying issues. Immigration, interior enforcement, the courts, the drug crisis, sanctuary cities, criminal justice, and even terrorism all ties together. All ties together. Where do we start? Where do we start? Before we get to the main point of today's show, to demonstrate that interior enforcement is more important than even border resources, that the antecedent to this entire immigration problem are the magnets that we have on the interior that we not only allow illegal immigration to prosper, we allow even criminal, dangerous, illegal immigrants to prosper. And in fact, the state politicians and state and federal judges are allowed to criminalize law enforcement and our sovereignty laws while making victims out of criminal aliens. That is why we have an immigration problem. See, if we didn't make it hospitable for them here, they couldn't be here. They wouldn't come here. They only come here because we do. So once we have the magnets, yeah, then we have a flood at the border, and we're all focused on the border resource issue, but it's not a border resource issue, and which is why it's so important headed into this final, final, final capitulation, which is what it's going to be, the final budget deadline we have right before Christmas, a week from Friday, with control, Republicans controlling the trifecta of government. They're not even making it about ending the judicial supremacy over immigration, the magnets, the identity theft, and sanctuary cities and the asylum loophole. They're making it just about border funding 
And then they're going to cave even on that. But that's not even the point. It's not even the point. Before I get to that, I want to start a little bit backwards today with the courts. What is going on in the courts? You see it again. You see it every day. There's almost never a time when the Supreme Court will actually act in a decisive way. So we've said many times, obviously, anyone who listened to a single show over the last three years knows that judicial supremacy is erroneous. It's not the system of government that we have adopted. But what we have in this generation is a step worse than that. It's not just supreme that the Supreme Court is God. It's any single lower court could be God. And then now that we have a, see, we have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court, but it's conservative in a certain way. They don't want to do anything. So they allow the lower court garbage to stand. And we're seeing this on every issue. We're seeing this, we're going to talk about today on obviously immigration, that they're allowed to violate 200 years of case law, destroy our sovereignty. And here's the thing. You now have random lower courts permanently altering the politics of state and federal government, the trajectory of our of our policies, the destiny of our nation, based on opinions that even the Supreme Court would never initially render, but because they're political, and Roberts for sure, but then Kavanaugh, as we're going to discuss also, and then Alito and Gorsuch to varying degrees, sometimes they're with Thomas, sometimes they're not, are not willing to overturn them. And we noted before, when you had this outlandish, radical, lower court standing in Oregon, giving standing to teenagers to sue the government over the weather. And the Supreme Court refused to grant relief and stop this trial, as they should have. Stop it in its tracks. Kavanaugh did not join, if you remember, with Thomas to, to agree to the emergency motion of the government. And it's the same thing today. Some of you might have seen this. For those of you who didn't, I think it's worth discussing now. Anderson v. Planned Parenthood. So you have a number of these cases now where the lower federal courts are now saying states must fund Planned Parenthood. There's now an unalienable right for Planned Parenthood to have funding. A private entity, forget about even the abortion aspect, a private entity has the right to Medicaid funds. Or put another way, citizens have the right to sue in court that states list certain providers for Medicaid. Meaning, I, I've noted before, this is not just about the courts getting involved in cultural issues. They're getting involved in fiscal issues, too. They're going to say, there's, and they're already kind of doing this, that there's a right to welfare. And not only is there a right to welfare, but there's a right to welfare of a, you know, specific vendors. I have to have access to a specific vendor. This has gone to five circuits so far. And as always, because most of the circuits are retarded, so almost all of them have ruled with Planned Parenthood or, or similar organizations funding Planned Parenthood. I believe it was the Ninth Circuit, I know. Um, 
the fifth circuit, seventh circuit, sixth circuit, eighth circuit, um, and tenth circuit. And all but one, all but one ruled with Planned Parenthood. And today, the Supreme Court denied cert. And so part of the problem we've been having is that, you know, because all the courts are bad, particularly where the left usually shops their cases, we don't even win at any case. So we can't even achieve a circuit split to trigger Supreme Court review. But, but, now it's gone to a new level altogether where the Supreme Court or enough of the justices now refuse to even review it, even if you get a circuit split. Right? Even when you get a circuit split, they won't do it. So in, in terms of guns, I'm going to get to guns in a minute. So guns, we've actually lost everything. But that's a separate problem because they abolished Heller. So the Supreme Court has an obligation to take up the case on that account. But, you know, you basically have five to seven circuits upholding assault weapon bans, magazine bans, uh, bans on carrying outside your home. All sorts of craziness. And the Supreme Court refuses to take, the, take, take up any, any of the appeals. Then you have, we had a similar case with public prayer, or you know, prayer to open up a county commission meeting, where we had circuit splits, or circuit said you can't do it, despite the Supreme Court's ruling in Town of Greece v. Galloway that you can. And the Supreme Court doesn't take it up. In all of these cases, Roberts never joins. Kavanaugh, we already noticed in a couple of them, haven't joined, you know, to take up the case. And he hasn't been around that long. And in all of them, Thomas is saying we have to take them up. And then to varying degrees, Gorsuch and, and Alito join with him, sometimes not. But what you're seeing from here is what I told you. That this business of, oh, we're going to have a conservative Supreme Court, so we don't have to worry about judicial reform. We don't have to worry about reforming the way we view the courts, stripping their power, because don't worry, we're going to appoint our justices. And, our justices. and I said, it's not going to make a difference, because commensurate with how wild the lower courts are getting, that's how passive the Roberts courts is, because they don't want to be viewed as political by overturning all these cases. But the problem is the lower courts are the ones that are being political and you have an obligation to take them up. If you want to be supreme, be supreme over your own stupid branch of government. Yet they want to be supreme over the other branches without being supreme over their own inferior courts. It just makes no sense. This is a very big problem that we're getting the lowest common denominator of the worst Supreme Court decisions and the worst lower court decisions even when the Supreme Court would never have issued them. It's a very big problem. It's a problem on every issue. So the issue today, again, this was the case uh, uh, against the Louisiana Secretary of, um, of Health and Human Services versus Planned Parenthood, where the government denied CERT. They denied CERT here. Thomas 
Alito and Gorsuch dissented from the denial of cert, and Thomas wrote the, you know, the write-up on it. Now notice Kavanaugh is not there. Once again, this is another proof of what I've been telling you, that Kavanaugh, contrary to many of the predictions by the mindless robots in our clickservative movement, he wants to be liked by the political class. And I, I understand it, meaning it hurt him deeply that they felt that after he came out swinging in that final testimony where he defended his honor, and God bless him for doing it, you know, that he looked like a wild-eyed politician rather than a judicious judge. So he wants to go back to that, and he's going to go out of his way to look impartial. But the problem is that's not being impartial. When you don't, when, if the lower courts aren't following the law, you got to look at what the law, the, um, you know, the Constitution and your own case law is saying. You can't do this. You can't allow this to stand. And I want to read, read to you from Thomas's dissent here on the denial. And he wrote it very beautifully because he talks about the consequences of this. And I think we've really pointed this out very evidently on immigration, and, and I'm going to explain that a little bit more today. But it's really occurring on many other issues. So he says like this, one of this court's primary functions is to resolve, quote, important matters on which the courts of appeals are in a conflict. This case, and Adderson v. Planned Parenthood, so it mixed the case from Louisiana and Kansas, from a Fifth and Tenth Circuit package together, present a conflict on a federal question with significant implications, whether Medicaid recipients have a private right of action to challenge a state's determination of qualified Medicaid providers under 42 USC. Five, circuits court, five circuit courts have held that Medicaid recipients have such a right, and one circuit court, one circuit has held that they do not. Okay. The last three circuits to consider the question have themselves been divided. This question is important and reoccurring. Around 70 million Americans are on Medicaid. And the question presented directly affects their rights. If the majority of the courts of appeals are correct, then Medicaid patients could sue when, for example, a state removes their doctor as a Medicaid provider or inadequately reimburses their provider. Because of this court's inaction, patients in different states, even patients with the same providers, have different rights to challenge their state's provider decisions. So, you know, Thomas is not... Obviously, we know where Thomas would be on the merits here, but he's making the point, like, this is very consequential, where you can't have... Uh, this is me talking, no longer quoting him. You can't have lower courts literally altering our destiny. Now, I would argue even the Supreme Court doesn't have that power on fundamentally political issues, you know, where the other branches disagree. Um, but again, if we're going to work in that system, you certainly can't have random divided lower courts. The Supreme Court needs to weigh in on that. Let me continue with uh, Thomas. The question presented also affects the rights of the states, many of which are amici requesting our guidance. Under the current majority rule, meaning the majority of the circuits, a state faces the threat of a federal lawsuit and its attendant costs and fees whenever it changes providers of medical products or services for its Medicaid recipients. Not only are the lawsuits themselves a financial burden on the states, but the looming potential for complex litigation inevitably will dissuade state officials from making decisions that they believe to be in the public interest. 
State officials are not even safe doing nothing as the cause of action recognized by the majority rule may enable Medicaid recipients to challenge the failure to list particular providers, not just the removal of former providers. Moreover, allowing patients to bring these claims directly in federal court reduces the ability of states to manage Medicaid as the suits give Medicaid providers an end run around the administrative exhaustion requirements in the state statutory scheme. So, you know, we're going to link to this in show notes. And, um, you know, I, I'm just saying a lot of people are, are missing some of the nuances of Thomas's point here. His point is, and we saw this with Ohio and defunding Planned Parenthood and other issues in Ohio and the abortion law, Kasich doesn't want to sign it because he's saying, look, you know, we're going to lose in court and we're going to have to defend it. But why should states have to alter? I mean, it's like the courts loom so large, even the lower courts, even the lower courts that would be reversed or the Supreme Court would never rule that way. They loom so large that not only are they a veto on the states and the other branches of government, that they're automatic, that we were dissuaded from good public policy because of the courts. I'm sorry, not only are they vetoing it, but they loom so large that they preempt the states from even doing it. So we literally have just one branch of government. Federal courts, that's it. It makes no sense. Our country is being destroyed by this. This is a lot bigger than any one case. Obviously, um, Thomas goes on to basically say that the reason why they're doing this is for one simple reason, that the name of the case has the word Planned Parenthood in it. And basically, no one wants to mess with them. And, you know, the liberals on the courts, um, they like keeping a five-to-one majority on the circuits in their favor no matter what. They don't want to risk losing it. Um, and the Roberts and Kavanaugh, evidently, they, they probably don't agree with it philosophically, but politically, they don't want to be too potent in any one direction. So they just want to keep the status quo. But I'm telling you, you're seeing this even with circuit splits. Now, I want to move on to guns, and that's going to be a good segue into immigration. I have an article out today with a classic Daniel juxtaposition. You know, I love juxtaposition. New Jersey just passed two laws slash policies over the past week. One is declaring their state a sanctuary state where they are inviting in all criminal aliens, all illegal aliens to reside, and basically we're not going to go after you. We're not going to ask for your status when we catch you. We're going to ignore ICE detainers and contravention to federal law on an issue that the Constitution clearly vests the federal government with the full power to deal with. And in addition, so they have a section with violent crim criminals. Normally, they like say, no, violent criminals. We're, um, oh, you know, just the opposite. We're not going to waste our resources going after your, your cleaning lady. We, you know, we're going to. We're going to go after the criminals. We, we, we just want prosecutorial discretion. And that was Obama's whole argument, by the way. Now they've gotten to the point, even since Obama, that they've become so radical, the Democrats in these states are basically saying, 
even the most violent criminals, rapists, murderers, it's spelled out in the Attorney General's memo. Right, this is um, the directive he posted, I believe, last Thursday. Attorney General Gerber Griel, however you pronounce that name, so he has a, has a provision there that even, I'm, I'm not joking, I promise you I'm not joking here. This is a quote. With violent or serious offenses such as murder, rape, arson, assault, bias crimes, and domestic violence offenses may be held for ICE only until 11.59 p.m. of that day. So meaning, let's say they catch a rapist at 10 o'clock at night and for whatever reason they want to let him go, ICE puts a detainer on him, they'll hold him until 11.59 that night, and that's it. And, you know, this is part of what Todd Lyons of the Boston ICE office told me this week. He said, heck, I'd, I'd go back to the Obama era, where at least we could go after criminal aliens. They're not allowing them to do that anymore. But anyway, at the same time, midnight tonight, Monday night into Tuesday morning, the law passed by the New Jersey legislature, signed by the new governor in June, is going to go into effect, making anyone who owns, has possession over a magazine with more capacity than, you know, that holds, holds more than 10 rounds, that person's a fourth-degree felon in possession of illicit contraband. So as you know, a lot of the blue states passed this mag capacity ban. But of course, they're all prospective. You know, it's not a matter of owning them. You just can't transfer, buy, sell. But, you know, you could have it shipped to another state and get it. And certainly not retroactive. This law was made retroactive. That So th- think about this. For, forget about the Second Amendment for a minute. Just the ex post facto clause and possibly the takings clause of the Constitution of the Fifth Amendment, but ex post facto, you know, as you know, um, it was one of the most foundational parts of our Constitution. Um, both Article One, Section Nine, um, direct, uh, pro- prohibiting Congress from making ex post facto laws, and Article One, Section Two, applying that uh, restriction to the states as well. Um, as Justice Joseph Story said, that they believe that fundamentally retroactive laws are unjust. Um, that you know, ex post facto was the paradigm of tyranny in those days because you're taking something that until now was completely legal i did the act legally and you're now saying you're not saying okay just don't do that again it's what you already did will now be criminalized against you right now so it's not like a matter of regulating activity like you're not allowed to carry outside of your home now that that runs amok the second amendment that's a separate point but it's not an inactivity. Just don't do it. Here, I'm sitting at home. I have a 15-round mag for, I mean, it's not just uh, rifles. This is anything. I mean, this could be your 9 millimeter handgun. There's almost no exceptions to this. And not even retired military. Only retired law enforcement, but in certain, only in certain cases. An active-duty law enforcement, active-duty military. So just merely having that, if you don't actively destroy it, then you're done. Now, how they're going to regulate it, I don't know. But let me tell you this much. The same people making the laws saying that you cannot ask 
someone's immigration status, I don't think they're going to have problems telling the police, oh, you can't ask to search whether someone has a, you know, 15 clip, uh, 15 round mag on them. How exactly they're going to discover you? I mean, it's like anything in your house. I don't know. But, you know, once, once that's looming there, that is very dangerous. So, first of all, I believe, if nothing else, this violates one of the most foundational constitutional limitations on governance, which is ex post facto laws. Clearly does. You know, in, um, in what do you call it? One of the first big cases, big constitutional cases ever in, in our country, Calder v. Bull, 1798. This was actually Justice Samuel Chase who wrote the opinion. He was later, um, they tried to impeach him. Uh, Jefferson wanted, wanted him out. But uh, he explained that ex post facto law is a law that makes an action done before the passing of the law and which was innocent when done, criminal, and punishes such action. I mean, you know, there might be, you know, they'll say, well, you can maybe modify it. They do have that option, but that, that's very tenuous. And um, here, here's, here's the interesting thing. So, so, so first off, again, this is the legacy of the courts literally abolishing Heller. Heller never existed, and the Supreme Court's allowing it to happen. It, everyone understands this with guns, but it's really happening on every case that the lower courts now rule, but only if the lower courts rule in a liberal way. Heads they win, tails they win, one-way street, dead end. That, you know, we, we've proven that a number of times. But what's amazing here is, there's an amazing lesson to learn. We have ironclad laws at a federal level, not just governing, you know, magazine capacities. But actually, the person, the illegal immigrant themselves, you, your whole presence here is illegal. And yet now, these very same judges are not only saying that states could violate the law, but are mandating they violate the law and are blocking the federal government and blocking ICE from deporting the most violent people. This is what my buddy, um, Todd Lyons, head of the Boston ICE um, office, was telling me. A lot of people forget. They think it's only a Ninth Circuit problem. It's most of the circuits. They're in the First Circuit there. He told me the First Circuit is single-handedly responsible for retaining endless number of gangbangers and transnational drug traffickers in the state, and they are responsible for the drug crisis that is ravaging New England, perhaps worse than any other area of the country. But what's amazing, you juxtapose these two things. So now... New Jersey became a hellhole. As you well know, ICE had a sweeping uh, operation they completed over the weekend. 105 criminal aliens were uh, apprehended. Many of the 80% of them had prior convictions and were released. And these were really bad dudes. Violent assault, obviously drug trafficking, all sorts of things. As we know, a month ago, one of them went on to commit a triple murder in Missouri. This was a guy released from New Jersey. It was middle of Sixth County um, on, on uh, I believe, his domestic uh, assault charges. And undoubtedly, countless more, based on this directive, will, will be released. 
and now state now now citizens are being denuded of their power to defend themselves. This is the hellhole we live in. But what's amazing to me from a from a judicial perspective is the same juggernaut courts that criminal aliens use to neuter our duly passed sovereignty laws. Right? These are, I mean, everything we want to do, we can't do to defend our nation. Every last thing, any criminal alien, illegal alien, no matter the circumstances, to get into the country, to remain in the country, to get all sorts of rights, access to benefits. It's like the courts are all powerful. They are the arbiter of rights, and they say these people have rights, and there's nothing we can do about it. Suddenly, these courts are impotent in the face of the juggernaut of unconstitutional laws passed by state legislatures stripping citizens of their real unalienable rights to self-defense at a time when, ironically, they need it most because of what they are doing on immigration. So, this is just, you know, before, again, we move on to immigration, just the duplicity of the courts. This, at its core, is why we have courts. Aside from adjudicating, obviously, cases under the law, But if you believe in judicial review, this is where it's appropriate. When John Marshall Marshall in Marbury versus Madison, which he really took it from Federalist 78 from Alexander Hamilton about 15 years ago, 15 years prior to Marbury, they give an example of ex post facto. That was the paradigm of what they talk about a court for. Meaning, this is an individualized right. This is not like, yeah, you know, I get standing to sue um, uh, redistricting or photo ID laws at the polls. Where, like, dude, you, you have an ID, so, I mean, well, how do you not, how do you get standing? Like, stop it. You're just trying to get a political issue in the courts. This is real. You are criminalizing inactivity of the most sacred right that's unambiguously in the Constitution more than anything else. Plus, you have Heller on top of it where the Supreme Court did affirm it. So, you know, that is where it's so appropriate for an individual to go to court. And Hamilton said, when he was explaining judicial review, again, as you well know, judicial review, as we say, doesn't mean that they sit on top of the food chain, that they're a veto, they nullify laws, that somehow, if, if they make a terrible ruling, that it's binding on everyone and the other branches can't use their powers to push back. But what it means is just like an individual, if they have a right being taken away by the other branches, the courts are one of the avenues to go to. Because we believe not in judicial supremacy, but constitutional supremacy. So if any one of the branches get it wrong, we have the right to kind of use another branch as well as the media, the just, you know, protests and the body politic in general to say, no, this is what the constitution means. And that's the thing. So what's going on in New Jersey is wrong, not because of, a judge would say or say so or not say so. It's because of the Constitution. But this is where they do it. And, and what Hamilton says is, he said, look, I understand courts are unelected. I'm just paraphrasing here. Courts are unelected. And I understand you anti-federalists don't like the fact that unelected branches should have any say in the Constitution. But like, dude, what, what, what's a judge supposed to do if a guy comes in front of him for an ex post facto law? So that's blatantly, quote, repugnant to the Constitution. That's what he writes in Federalist 78, and, and Marbury uh, quotes that. 
you know, obviously he's got, he swore an oath to uphold the Constitution, so he's got to rule with the Constitution. Now, obviously, even in that case, I'm not going to tell you that I believe in judicial supremacism when it comes to guns. I believe in constitutional supremacism. The other branches are still, you know, free to push back, but we're free to push back with our tools when we disagree. You know, it's, it's, it works both ways. But this is the one right that it says shall not be infringed. And not only are you infringing, you're actively regulating an inactivity of something that was legally purchased. So it's also ex post facto violating Article 1, Section 10, possibly the takings clause of, of the Fifth Amendment, and nothing. They don't, say, they don't say anything. But criminal aliens have a right to be here. Which brings me to what's going on in New England and my conversation with ICE and DA officials that are responsible for, for operations in the field there. Oh, and by the way, just before we get to the New England drug alien crisis, I just want to mention to you with Kavanaugh, a lot of people don't realize this problem with him. A lot of people don't get it. But there's a reason why he was not on the original list. If you remember, there were several lists. It wasn't until the third one that Kavanaugh's name was put on, and there was a reason for it. He had some of these type of rulings. This is exactly what I wrote about. I, I literally predicted this. I'm going to link to it in show notes. I said I, I had an article when everyone was in Kavanaugh mania. I said, here are my concerns about him. And I said, it's not so much that he's going to give bad rulings, but he's not going to categorically reject the left. And these are one of the things that he's going to do the Roberts shtick and, and not grant cert. So we're going to put that in show notes as well, because, again, I think that's something that I'm not doing this to say, hey, I, I see, I told you so. It's that we need to stop this political morphine of, oh, we're winning back the courts. You see, we, we won them already. We, we got a conservative. No, no, you don't. The courts are irremediably broken. The entire system, the left gamed it out, so we lose. So stop playing their game. Stop playing their game. This is obvious. But anyway, look, the courts at the end of the day is the end all of immigration as well. And that was confirmed with my conversation with Todd Lyons and other people that I can't mention on the record, but I could mention his name, at least to you today. See, we don't have a border security problem. We have a suicide of a nation problem. The stuff he was telling me is insane. So basically what he confirmed to me is, is everything we've been saying on the nexus of all these issues that implicates not just the sanctuary agenda and the sanctuary court agenda, but also this criminal justice deform. Number one, the entirety of the epidemic level increase in drug fatalities in New England over the last, what, what is it, five years or so, since 2013, has been from fentanyl and heroin, all brought in with the Central American wave of migration, has nothing to do with prescription drugs. Prescriptions have plummeted in Massachusetts and in um, a lot of those states, in New, also New Jersey, by the way, too. 
Uh, they, they're one of the lowest prescribing states. It's all illicit drugs. It's all youngsters. It's 73% males. So there's nothing to do with pain patients. And then recently, cocaine has become a problem. And it's all through the border or the maritime smuggling in the case of, of cocaine. That's number one. Number two, the Dominican gangs in Lawrence are single-handedly responsible for the crisis. They peddle the drugs on behalf of the Mexican cartels. So in some parts of the country, like in Chicago, it's going to be the Wallisca New Generation Cartel themselves have agents, or they have MS-13, the Mexican gangs working for them. In New England, it's all from Lawrence, which is a blank hole, if you know what I mean. And it is, it's like... 80% Hispanic, the city, it's, it's the biggest ethnicity is Dominicans. It's all the Dominican gangs that are bringing them in, that, that, that are peddling them. Meaning, what DA officials told me is that if we were empowered to go after them tomorrow, you didn't have sanctuary cities and sanctuary judges, and we still had the plenary power doctrine intact, meaning that immigration is an elected policy, whether you're legal or illegal immigrant, if you are doing a crime, you have no affirmative right to be here. So if you're an illegal, the minute we catch you, you're out. And if you're a legal immigrant, the minute we catch you with criminal activity, um, you know, it takes a little longer. Obviously, there is going to be a trial, but we deport you. We apprehend you. You would bust up all of the networks. And you wouldn't have a drug crisis. I asked these officials, I asked both DEA and ICE. And I said, how much of the drug crisis is a criminal alien problem? And they said, Daniel, it's the entirety of the problem in New England. And it's really, really everywhere, but they could speak for New England. And New England, as you well know, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Maine, these were among the worst states in the country. It is all among that population. Now, in general, just know we brought in... We, we, we have like 60,000 green cards given out to Dominicans every year. A lot of people don't know that. Dominican Republic is the fifth largest nationality or of, uh, recipient of our, our legal immigration system. So you got Mexico is one, China is two, um, I believe India is three usually, and then Cuba recently has surged to four because that's a whole other thing that we could talk about. Um and yeah, Dominican Republic is five. And before I just get to anything else, I mean, you know, and look, not certainly not all of them are doing this. And this is very important to understand. It's just like we talked about with the Yemeni immigrants peddling the K2 spice with the rat poison in, in it. These are all criminal alien networks. It doesn't mean that every immigrant is involved in it, just like not every Italian was involved in the mafia. Or, you know, each ethnicity had its own criminality. But what, what people don't understand is this. A lot of times organized crime is going to be by immigrants um, just because it, it doesn't mean they're, they're necessarily per capita even worse, although the ones we're bringing in now are worse. But I'm saying even if we had... You know, we, we didn't commit suicide like this. You just have to understand that because you need close-knit networks. You, you're often, you get together. Um, you know, where I'm from, you have a lot of, in my community, community you have a lot of Iranian Jews. And they're great people. They, they um, 
own, you know, buy businesses and start businesses, and it, they do legal stuff. But they they do it together. They they you know they know each other, and it's you know when you have just regular kind of Native Americans, you know, white Anglo-Saxons, Protestants, or Catholics or whatever, just random people. You you might have a church or some sense of a community, but you're not as close knit as you're going to have when you have ethnic groups coming in. They're very close knit. Um, that that's just the reality. So as it relates to criminality, often they're going to go in flocks. So when you bust them up, you could bust up the entire network. So the point is, this is the most redressable problem imaginable. At a primary level, all of the drug trafficking in New England are criminal aliens. A lot of them illegal, some are legal immigrants. But the point is, we could choose our immigrants. We can't choose our natives. We could deport criminal aliens. You can't deport criminal natives. We have a bad enough criminal justice system where it's catch and release, and they're all out on the streets very easily. But in this case, it doesn't have to be this way. Then 72,000 people dying. This is the biggest issue around. And it's all driven by the migration, distributed by criminal alien networks, and protected by sanctuary states and, and, and sanctuary judges. And by the way, I just want to point out that um, 57% of Dominican immigrants are at or near the poverty level. 70% use at least one means-tested program. 70%. To my knowledge, I could be wrong, that is the most of any country of origin. More than Somalia, more than El Salvador, more than Mexican immigrants, a little bit more. 70%. Whoever voted for this? Now, what he said, a big part of the problem is, because of its proximity to Puerto Rico, somehow they go to Puerto Rico. So a lot of them, there are some Dominicans coming through the border, but most of them go to, through Puerto Rico and they get, stole, they get fake IDs as Puerto Ricans. And that's very dangerous because that allows them to come here freely as Puerto Ricans have that ability. And then they just overstay their visas. And he told me, he said, they get driver's licenses from the Massachusetts. And they never... Meaning, I, I said this before, a bigger thing than building the wall is getting rid of all the magnets, all the legal protections, and you actually treat them like we would treat illegal guns being purchased. Oh, whoops, well, we actually don't treat illegal guns um, bad if they're criminal aliens peddling them, but you know what I mean. Law-abiding citizens. The way to combat illegal immigration is by making it illegal. It's the magnets, it's the incentives, it's the lack of interior enforcement. That is the entirety of the problem. And the foundation of that is really identity theft. Imagine, what if I told you the entire, the entire drug crisis in New England is the result of identity theft? How, how, how does that work together? Because the entirety of it is from the Dominican gangs, criminal alien gangs in Lawrence, Massachusetts, because it sits at the perfect junction of all the highways going north to New Hampshire and Maine. 
It has the demographics. Again, not every Dominican's in there. Now, most of them are public charges, and that's a separate problem we need to discuss. Not all of them are engaging in criminality, but among them are going to be there in the city government because the politics becomes as such, because of demographics, they, they protect them. And that's it. See, if you had a functioning government, they couldn't get a driver's license, or if they show up, boom, you catch them. You see that right away. If Social Security and um, IRS would work on this, inform all the employers, inform local law enforcement when a match, when there's a mismatch, they they have the info. They could ping them. Inform the individuals who had their identities stolen. Now, this is more complicated in America because they're mainly taking Puerto Rican identities. But still, 70% of Dominicans are on welfare. How are they getting it? A lot of them have American-born kids. That's a whole other problem. We're stuck with them. So what Todd told me was that so not only do they have the sanctuary problem, but then even when ICE struggles to get them on their own, because again, you have to understand, ICE doesn't sit in patrol, nor do we want them to. It's the local law enforcement that will get them, but the, the feds that have the expertise in immigration and the identity of who they are. And if you work together, it's a match made in heaven. If you don't, it's a match made in hell. So it's hard enough for them to do it on their own to go get them. But even when they do, then you have the sanctuary courts. The courts say you can't deport them. Oh, they have American-born kids. That's what they're doing now. ACLU is shutting them down. He told me the First Circuit is killing them. Basically, the First Circuit has abolished the plenary power doctrine. What's happening now is... So, these criminal alien networks are protected by sanctuary cities. They were released even the worst criminals before ICE can catch them. The rise of the drug crisis directly corresponds with the timing of the collapse of cooperation, even with criminal illegal aliens. Um, and then, and then, yeah, you got these judges. So whereas it used to be, here's the thing. The truth is so much of the crime taking place because a lot of the drug traffickers are doing the other crime and the gangs, the antecedent of the problem is an immigration problem. That's why when I started talking to him about this first step act and he knew, he knew about it. He was like, dude. Why would they do that? He said, all of the beneficiaries of that will be criminal aliens. He, he would tell me how like 45 out of 46 individuals in a random sting. So sometimes they were, um, you know, ICE-driven. So obviously it's all, all going to be aliens. But he said there were operations that were all DA-driven. There were just random drug takedowns that wasn't targeting necessarily criminal aliens. And he would say 45 out of 46 of them were aliens. Deportables. And again, the ones that aren't, they get roped into it because we have the criminal alien networks here. Um, so, you know, they're going to get involved on secondary trafficking. You want to talk about, see, they don't give a damn about the safety of Americans. They don't give a damn about the gangs, the drug crisis, the terrible crime brought in by criminal aliens. But they do care about the prison population. Well, let me tell you something. You want to reduce the prison population? I got the best way to do it. You want to reduce that population? 
cut off the magnets and have interior enforcement and get rid of the the judiciary's jurisdiction, not that they had it to begin with, to adjudicate these cases, and you're done. But what's happening now is this was the most redress. Imagine if um immigrants barely committed crime. So it would be bad enough that you hamstring law enforcement from going after them because it's redressable. We have due process in this country, and then we have 100 years of BS extra due process. It's very hard to even hold people. You need a certain standard of probable cause, and then to certainly land a conviction is tough. But aliens, the beauty is you could just remove them. They don't have a right to be here. We should never have a single bad immigrant in this country. Not that it's worse if you're a bad immigrant than a bad native. It's just from a public policy redressability standpoint. It's an elective policy and it's a sovereignty issue, so you don't have to deal with it. There's a lot of wonderful people in God's green earth of 7.7 billion people. Why are we bringing in the people that do this? Why? And then we coddle them. So what he told me, what's starting to happen now is rather than it being easier as it was for 100 years, it's now harder because they're considered a protected class. So now whereas, you know, so for, first of all, they consider, as you well know, domestic violence, assault, drug trafficking, firearms trafficking, low level. And they consider immigration violations low level. So you put them together, they consider them low level, and they let them go. They completely let these guys go. But even the most violent criminals now where, let's just give them enough credit, let's just say for a minute, that citizens, they, yeah, you know, they're going to hold them. Illegals, they're letting go even the worst. These guys that, I mean, you had this case they were telling me about, an MS-13, um, 19-year-old that was in a ninth grade class, brought in, carved up someone with a knife. Um, and, uh, you know, he said he brought the knife because uh, he thought he might need it for class. And, uh, you know, he, he was in the system before. He was let go by a judge. And then you have judges in Massachusetts now downright, literally, physically jailbreak, allowing them to escape the courthouse building. It's all redressable. This is a national emergency. Yet Republicans aren't talking about it. And even Trump, to the extent we get anything on it, it's the border wall and funding for the border. Let me tell you something else he said that kind of brings this full circle. He told me that there is a growing trend, and I, I heard about this before from Jessica Vaughn, of all sorts of people coming now to our northern border in New England and elsewhere. A lot of Romanian gypsies are coming, but all sorts of people. And this is why next week when my buddy Todd Benzman returns from his trip to Panama, you could follow him on Twitter. You see, um, and he sent me some off-the-record pictures there's a massive Middle Eastern problem in Panama and Costa Rica, and they're coming north. It doesn't take a genius. It, there's nothing special, spe- special about Guatemala and Honduras and these countries, other than they're just closer geographically to us. As we noted, violence is down there. Every impoverished dump hole in the world, if you tell the people we're open for business, that if you come here, you can get a job, you can steal an identity, you could... um get welfare, your kid's an automatic citizen, we're going to prosecute law enforcement for going after you rather than you, we're going to, we're, the courts are going to treat ICE like criminals and you guys like special citizens, yeah, they're going to come. And they're coming all, all sorts of people. It's not just Hispanic, you know, Latin Americans, it's, it's all sorts of people are going to come to take advantage of that. Some might be terrorists, 
some not. Some might be a public charge. Most will, most will be. Some might be criminal, some not. But they're all going to come. And I will tell you this, we'll never have the resources to secure both the northern and southern border if you open up a whole other front. Which is why it's all about the magnets. It's interior enforcement. It's ending sanctuaries. We need that all in the budget bill. Stripping the courts of jurisdiction. DEA and ICE told me we could solve the immigration and drug crisis tomorrow if we actually followed our case law, our set of law on the right to immigrate and deportations. And then again, it gets back to this um, this uh, jailbreak thing. It's all a criminal alien problem when you're talking about the federal system for drug and, and look. You know, they're trying to get Trump to Trump's heart on this because you're seeing that, you know, it's very likely now that Trump himself might even be indicted because of campaign finance uh, violations and be like, what the heck? This, we need criminal justice reform because we're, you know, these stupid BS laws. I agree. So write a bill getting rid of these campaign finance stuff. It has nothing to do with the legislation that they're doing because, frankly, they don't have the balls to write legislation like that to fight the Democrats and be accused of all being for for dirty money. So, you know, it's easier to protect criminal aliens and drug traffickers and gangbangers because they have the biggest lobbies. But these are the people. So, you know, the picture I got from them is when you talk about federal drug felons, it's all an immigration problem. This is how you straddle all these issues come together. By the way, another thing he told me that he he worries is the terrorism angle that, you know, Massachusetts is home to the most universities and you have tens of thousands of Middle Eastern students in these industries, in, in, these, in these colleges. And that's the story. There we are, folks. Man, I didn't even scrape the, the surface of what I want to talk about. But I wanted you guys to understand why this is worse. And and by the way, he told me another problem, and, and he gave me an on-the-record quote, Todd Lyons, in this uh, article I put out today on New Jersey. He said they're having a major problem where san- one sanctuary state exacerbates the problem of another. It's such a magnet that what they do is they commit a bunch of crimes in one state, and then when they're about to kind of finally trigger you know, the incar- incarceration there – They travel to another one. And what happens is because the entire legal culture views things things as low level, plus viewing illegals to begin with as a protected class, they won't look at their criminal record. So what they're getting in Massachusetts is a lot of people from Virginia, Maryland, and New Jersey coming north that have terrible criminal records. Let's say they're picked up on, you know, a driving charge and the judge will just say, oh, low level. And he won't look at the previous stuff. And, and this is the problem he told me about New Jersey, with New Jersey becoming a sanctuary state. He, he's gotten people from New Jersey where they commit horrible crimes there. They get away with it. And then maybe, you know, finally it's bad enough. They feel they have to leave. They just go to Massachusetts now. And the liberal judges there take a look and, you know, that's it. And by the way, another thing he told me is that this is not just the Article Three federal judges, but the DOJ immigration judges are terrible. He's like, one day, you know, he's fighting them in court. They're like an ACLU lawyer. And the next minute, the defense attorneys for the aliens 
become immigration judges. They get promoted. Sessions tried to change a lot of that, but Boston's particularly bad, which is why Boston let go like it was like an 80% rate in immigration cases, letting uh, giving them relief. That is why the drug crisis is more evident there than anywhere else. Period. So I want to get him on the show to talk more about this. Um, we gotta we gotta work on this uh, this issue more. But this is why I have a, there's a special place in hell for people promoting sanctuary cities and people promoting jailbreak. I can't believe it. I mean, it's not even like the body politic is not talking about the drug crisis. They're talking about it all right. They have the chutzpah to talk about it and then promote the very policies that caused it to this day. Truly, truly disgusting. Truly disgusting. It's unbelievable. I want to tie this all up, and, and, and there's a bunch of other stuff. The the farm bill that they're about to release is is just is an insane big government market storting nanny state food stamp corporate welfare garbage bill at a time when we're in debt, but no one wants to talk about that, especially with the threat to Trump being indicted now. It's going to be all that all the time. I know you have all the jockeying for the different positions in the cabinet and chief of staff and we'll talk about that um maybe maybe in the next show by the way just um as it relates to Barr, you know the nominee for attorney general um some of you want my thoughts on it, it uh, it's nothing different than andy mccarthy i don't have personal insight i don't know him um but you know it's just what andy said uh, he's he seems to be a good guy so i think we dodged the bullet there i think trump made a good pick it also is kind of brilliant that at a time right after H.W. Bush's death, he picked his AG to come back. He's old school, so old school, he's going to be good on law and order. Um, that's all I know for now. But I want to end with the following story to tie this all together. This is from the Irish Sun. Iran's president has warned Donald Trump's sanctions over its nuclear weapons program will unleash a massive influx of drugs, migrants, and terrorists into Europe. Hassan Rouhani, who was speaking at a Six Nation conference on fighting terrorism, <laughs> said that crippling economic measures meant it could not hold back heroin and people smuggle, smugglers who fund extremists. <laughs> um, I'm going to link to this in show notes, but notice what he said. Drugs, migrants, and terrorists. Now, he said Europe, but what he really means between the lines is America, too. Guess what? Here's, here's, here's the one problem with that. We get a say in the matter. He doesn't have the ability to unleash it unless we commit suicide as a nation and allow them in, our front door, our back door, coddle them interior-wise. Drugs. Migrants and terrorists. That is how they're going to fight us. We don't need, this is not a military threat. It's an FBI, Homeland Security, immigration policy threat. It's a prosecution threat. That's where we need to put our tools, keep our military for a standing deterrent against conventional threats, which which it is. And we, 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 
Oh, not not to get into foreign policy Friday again, but it's just this is so maddening. That that article is so telling. You'll see it. That is the threat. I'm telling you this is where this is, and I'm telling you there's more of a terrorist angle to the drugs than we even know. And um, I do have a call into one uh, DEA official that is going to give me information on that off the record. But just know that this is a major, major issue. Send me your comments and concerns, type of guests you want on, any questions you have on some of these issues, any theories you have that you, you know, want them explored. Let's do this together. I can't do this without you. Email me at dharwitz at crtv.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Thank you very much for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 